0: Your sporting life for Tobin Brothers funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Peter Donigan.
2: And it's great to have you with us for another edition of the program. Don't forget you can visit TobinBrothers.com.au to find out more as we celebrate the life of a man who's certainly made his mark in football. Four premierships. He's one of the finest players of the modern era and he's only just announced his retirement. He's going to have plenty to do in retirement. His name is Jordan Lewis and he's with me in the studio. Louis, welcome. Thanks for having me, Donners. Is that a big enough build up for you? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm second guessing myself on retirement now after spending the summer with the boys, my little three boys. So I'm certainly probably fitter than I've ever been just chasing after three little kids. But at the moment, it's sitting really well with me. Yeah.
2: Now, normally, uh, I would save the hard questions for last, but I'm going to ask you the hard question straight away. Go. Have you paid the bill that Blunston Arena obviously sent you after your farewell game <laughs> down there with your boys in that little corporate box which was next to the radio box because they destroyed it? They, that's what I
1: heard after the game. I would always, as the game was unfolding, I knew, you know where they are, so I knew where they were. And unfortunately for you, they were next to the radio box. They were. And every time I'd look over, it'd be a different kid hanging out the window with someone holding onto their legs Correct. just so they didn't fall down. Yes. But that was, it was an amazing day. And I suppose those who've got kids at at the age where my boys are there too, they need a sleep during the day. And this was a day where they couldn't have a sleep. So you could imagine how feral they were at the game, but then on the plane ride home, Thankfully, it was all Melbourne people, and although it was a sad day because I retired and we lost, but they were unbelievable. They were playing footy in the aisles. Mm-hmm. Um, they were jumping over chairs. They, were, they really lightened the mood, but yeah, I
2: could understand what you were going through throughout that game because they were feral. Turn it back a couple of hours then, the last quarter of that game down at Blunston Arena. Did you have any thoughts of all of the games, those 319 games that had gone before
1: it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that that was out on the field. And it's I sort of likened it to when you're playing in big games and you have a moment to reflect because the game um, is at the other end of the ground or a break in time, whatever it may have been. So I did catch myself thinking, you know, this is the last time I'll be on an, on an AFL ground. Um, and... I mean, I don't get too emotional, but it is, I suppose I felt quite rewarded to to sort of sit back and just think quickly about the career that had gone um, and what I was able to to achieve from a team point of view and, and a little bit of individual success, but mainly from a team point of view, the things that I'm proud of. Um, so yeah, I'd be lying if I said that last quarter wasn't a moment of reflection at some point.
2: When you looked up, Louie and you saw your kids running amok in the box, there was someone else up there apart from Lucy. Ruff was there. How special was that, that he was there that day? Yeah, it's, it's funny. And I think I mentioned before, I'm not
1: an emotional person, but for whatever reason, when I speak about Ruffy in particular, um, I get quite emotional because I know what he's been through. Mm. Um, and to, to still be here with us and to enjoy those moments that we've been you know, together and, um, and even to beat his last game and to be involved in that from a, um, a talent point of view and be able to interview him after the, the game was, was really special to me. So
2: to have the Melbourne Football Club bring him down there and
1: I find it hard to talk
2: about. Yeah, and understandably so because you've been inextricably linked from the moment that you were drafted and we'll talk about that day a little bit later on. But let's remember that game that he played in. I was watching that game on television I don't reckon I've watched a game of footy with a bigger smile on my face. And I'm not a Hawthorne supporter, but it was just – it was a brilliant way for him to finish. It was just appropriate.
1: Yeah, and I think probably the way the year unfolded, you know, with his form and the way the team went and him giving up the captaincy and and, and everything that sort of culminated in that last match, it was it was probably a lot of relief for him to to play that one final match that may not have looked like it was coming – to play it the way that he played it, but also to play it in a manner where it probably gave everyone a a view if they watched the game on how much he meant to everyone else because they look for him. I mean, he, mm. he played well. He probably kicked one goal that was vintage rough, but they were, they were looking for him and we remind Ruffy of that. I just remember a specific play where Ruffy was leading out and the kick was going to him and Gunston came across and cut it off and there was boos from... Gold Coast supporters and Hawthorne supporters. Yeah. And I just thought, I've never been in a game like that. And I don't think people who were sitting at home on the couch like you were, you don't necessarily get the emotion of the game at home. And it certainly mm. felt like that being there. It was it was a surreal experience.
2: Did the thought cross your mind, I wish I could be doing this as a Hawthorne player rather than a Melbourne player? Uh, no, it didn't. No. And I think...
1: I think that's my personality. I suppose that my my dad has always taught me to move on and not and not reflect a hell of a lot, um, especially on stuff that you can't control anymore. If I hadn't have gone to Melbourne, maybe I wouldn't have played three hundred games. Maybe I wouldn't have met the friends that I've met. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to deal with post career as well as I, as well as I have because I hadn't had any change in my footballing life. There was a moment when I was in the rooms and it still felt like home to say as a player that I would have loved to have finished um, and played my final game with Hawthorne. It it didn't enter my
2: mind. You're still doing stuff at Melbourne, aren't you?
1: Yes, I still work there two days a week. Initially, when I retired, Goody wanted me on as a full time coach, but I didn't want to, I suppose, step into that straight after football. Football is is all-consuming as a player, and I would imagine it is as a coach. So, to step back from that—that that relentless day-to-day, consciously thinking about football—I didn't really want to do. So we we tried to compromise and come up with a, a role that suited me, and then to more into an opposition analysis type of role. So, um, yeah, I think that's made the transition easier still being connected to football in a way as well.
2: Well I hope that's going to allow you to do some media stuff because you you're very comfortable in the media. I've watched you develop over the last few years, had the pleasure of sharing the commentary box with you. You're still going to be doing some of that?
1: Yeah, so that's primarily what I'll do this year and I mean my first 5 games I think I did with you on on radio and yeah. um forever grateful and I think I mean I still I love the game. I think I can see the game quite well and I think I can get better, but articulate it to people who may not necessarily understand it that well. So that's probably my my role this year on on Sen and and Fox Footy, combining those two. and And as I said before, it, it, it keeps me connected to the game, but not in a in an everyday capacity, which I'm really thankful it's there. What do you like more, radio or television? Uh, I find radio harder. Um, I, I don't know why, but it's, it's you just got to be really descriptive I suppose and there's there's not that element of a replay or anything like that it, it, it really is the hardest way to to commentate and it's not until you're in that environment or in a radio environment like this that the respect for the journalist is just unbelievable because it's such a hard job um, so my I suppose my biggest challenge because when I was playing um, your life is so controlled by football I got away from football a lot so I didn't necessarily watch too many games. So my biggest challenge is to learn who the players are, to be honest. I mean, you you probably know the top five or ten from every club, but I need to be across all players of every single club. So
2: that's probably the biggest challenge that I face. You make an interesting point, Louis, about not realising what the job is about. Do you reckon that there is a case for current-day players to maybe spend some time looking at what the media does because there is this natural suspicion between players and the media sometimes about, oh, they're only trying to get something salacious or something dirty or something inside. But that's not the case most of the time. I think we're all working towards the same goal. Would that sort of thing work, do you think? I think absolutely it would. I think um,
1: the guard has been up for a, a long time from mainly football clubs. I mean, players are always willing to do stuff and willing to be exposed to the media and, and exposed to what they do. But it's certainly from a club point of view that they want to be really controlling in what they allow their players to do. And I remember from our Hawthorne days, like we would we would do interviews and we would get prepped before every interview because the the club wanted to control the messages that are leaving um leaving the club. So and, and I can understand that, but but there also needs to be a, an element of players getting a behind the scenes look of of how the media works and that it is not all negative because I think that would be the mindset of the playing group at the moment that you got to tiptoe around certain journalists because you're just scared of what may get written.
2: Mm. I can go back to the old days when I used to cover training at Glenferry Oval and we'd just wander into the rooms and Bobby Yeomans would be in there cooking sausages and it was just, it was an open door policy and a lot of the American sports actually do that. So, yeah. you know, I don't think it's anything to be feared. No, I don't think so. I
1: think initially it would be, you know, how much do you give and how much do you take? But then I think because the NFL and and all these American sports have done it for so long, there is that genuine respect. If it was an open door policy like that, it would keep journalists more accountable because you don't want to be a journalist and write a story that is maybe not 100% true about a player from a certain club and then have to go into that room post game the next week understanding what you've just written mm. may not be necessarily true. So I think that would it would hold both sides accountable in that sense because you do become face-to-face with these players that you could potentially write about. But you're also, on the other hand, you learn more about these players if you go to training or if you go to the
2: aftermatch or if, whatever it may be. But yeah, I don't see too many journalists at, at training these days. Jordan Lewis is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. You can find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au. Plenty more coming up with Louis after the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
2: Sam Mitchell brings it up to the wing as the clock ticks down inside the last 25 seconds and there might still be room for one more Hawthorne goal. It is Roughhead who gets it to Burgoyne and they go streaming inside 50. Burgoyne looks up and says, what can you do? Here comes Spangler, the crowd roars and he was kept out of it by McGlynn. And so McGlynn's going to run away, as the great Hawthorne team did 25 years ago. They go back to back. In 2014, the Hawks are triumphant in the most emphatic fashion. One of the great memories in the football career of Jordan Lewis... All those great grand final moments, we'll talk about those. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I don't know who that bloke was calling that. but um, <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, some memories that we will talk about, but let's dial it all the way back to Ornable and a kid growing up. Were you in love with footy from the word go? Uh,
1: I was in love with sport. I suppose my main sport growing up was basketball. Uh, and I was fortunate enough that that took me all over Victoria, and played on most most weekends. And that was, I suppose, my real my real love. And it wasn't until I was about eleven or twelve where I had a mate that was going to football training on a Tuesday night, and I had nothing to do, and I went down and joined him. And that was that was probably what's what's then sparked it back up again. Um, and then I I really controlled or juggled football and basketball up until I was probably 16. And then then I looked at sort of the pathways to, I suppose, not that I would have played it, but NBL back then and AFL. And for me, the AFL pathway was just so much clearer. So I decided to forego the basketball route and just take on football.
2: Would you have been good enough to play at the top level in basketball, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think I probably could have been an NBL
1: player if I yeah. if I really had of. I mean, it's funny, in, in hindsight, now that I've been in a professional environment and just learnt so much about being a professional, you go, yeah, I could have done it easily, but you just don't know whether you're a young basketballer coming through, whether a professional environment in terms of the NBL environment would have really shaped me in terms of um, being a professional athlete. But I loved it. Yeah, really enjoyed basketball.
2: So you make the choice and footy is going to be the pathway that you take. How did it progress that this young fellow who was good at a couple of sports all of a sudden found himself going down the path where the AFL might have been a reality? So 16s, um, I'm in the Geelong Falcons team.
1: So we we would always travel down. It was a heavy commitment for country kids to, to play TAC Cup. But from the age of 16 through to 18, we would travel down to Geelong once on a Wednesday night and then we'd go down on a weekend to play. So for me, the, it was being um, pigeon oh, earmarked from, from playing with Warrnambool and then Alan Thompson, who was the, the regional manager at the time, would then get everyone that he thought could potentially play with the Geelong Falcons and then you would try out. So you would try out and, and the players that performed then got onto the list like any sporting organisation does so then we would be selected and we'd we'd just play Geelong Falcons and my first year as a 17 year old kid in the Geelong Falcons I I played played every game Um, I think I was in the Vic squad um, as a bottom age player and potentially could have been drafted I think Essendon may have been tossing up whether whether to pick me or whether not to pick me and they just sort of fall went that that year but then as an 18-year-old kid, I look back and I was, I was a chubby 18-year-old kid, but you don't really realize it at the time. But, um, yeah, I, I played quite well and, and then represented Victoria and, and that type of stuff. But I could, always, I
2: could always find the ball. That was never really the issue. It was probably more about how could I run out of game. And then came the 2004 draft. And I think I was hosting the draft that day, and I think I was with Terry Wheeler. Yeah. And, uh, and Ruff came past. And he said, That kid can play. He can seriously play. And I said, What's his name? He said, Jared Roughhead. And of course, we laughed. Yeah. And he said he and he <laughs> and he has got one too, yeah. yeah. He said, There's one better. See that kid over there? They call him Buddy. And then you're there too. So in the top seven picks, Roughhead, Franklin, Lewis. Wasn't a bad draft for the Hawks, really, was it? Yeah. So I'll take you back
1: to the draft camp in Canberra, and I'd never met Bud before, but I had a really good relationship with Ruffy because we played a bit of basketball together. And then he had a good relationship with Buddy because they were part of the AIS. So they they really clicked through the AIS, and then Ruffy, Buddy, and I really clicked at the camp because we were all sort of mates in a roundabout way. And I just remember there was a lot of downtime at the draft camp. So we would, being young kids, we'd just get footballs out and just have a kick or chew the fat or whatever it was that we did. And he he would just, I could see that he was different from then because he would we would just be learning how to kick, drop punts, and just making sure they spun right because everyone else was sort of watching. You didn't really want to embarrass yourself, but he was he was just bending it around trees and just trying kicks that I would never have thought of as a as a kid. And I just thought what a special talent he was. And then to go, I don't think he did the time trial, but I could just see that he was physically immature but so raw and talented so then come the draft day when Ruffy was selected first and then Buddy came and then I came along um, it felt like it was sort of meant to be I suppose because we all knew each other from that point in time and to go to the club I was always a bit nervous moving from Ornable to Melbourne
2: or interstate for that matter but with those two guys there I was ready to get out of audible So it made a huge difference to you because young men are plucked at an early age and they're put into an environment that includes sometimes some of their heroes. But regardless of the people on the outside, you had that little core group of three that was always going to make it a a whole lot easier, the experience.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we, so from the time we got drafted up until Christmas, the three of us stayed at Gary Bacchanara's house. So I was the only 18-year-old, so I had the licence. I'd have to drive these two. Blokes around for a couple of months until we went away on Christmas break and then got billeted out. But that that two months was some of the great memories. We'd we'd lived together and and just um, enjoy each other's company. And there were other guys that we were drafted with, but because we I suppose lived together, we we
2: certainly created that close bond straight away. Uh, I think from knowing you, you're quite neat. Um, were you the neatest of the three, and who were? Who was the messier of the two between Ruff and Buddy?
1: Oh, certainly Buddy. Ruffy, Ruffy's neat to the... I am neat to a point in not being OCD, whereas Ruffy is OCD. Really? Really bad. Yeah. yeah. like we, we would room together, and it was the same process every single time. We'd get into a room interstate. He'd put his boots there. He'd put his clothes there. He'd put his undies there. He'd put his socks there, and everything would be lined up and level. He'd go have a shower, just mess it all up. So you'd see him come out and he'd just be scratching his head, going, Oh no, not again. And it would really stuff with his head. And he's still got it to this day. It has to be colour-coded, has to be everything. Really bad. He's a bit Raphael Nadal. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Um So, but Buddy was he was just messy. He would just there'd be absolutely you get into his car and there'd be just Coke cans everywhere and maccas and, and all that type. Because he had that high metabolism from an early age where he could just eat whatever he wanted and just perform.
2: Half his luck. Yeah. Um, it didn't take long for you to perform. You, you settled into the routine and the rhythm of AFL football pretty quickly as a young fella, didn't you? Yeah, I suppose my greatest ability was to just to find the ball. I suppose,
1: to have a football brain. Um, and then the athletic, not that I was ever athletic, but the athletic side and, and building up a fitness base and all that sort of stuff came a bit later. But I, I, I found it after the first couple of games. I remember walking out there and playing my first um, pre-season match at the time at Telstra home. I think it was against St. Kilda. And I just stood out there and I'd never been exposed to anything that went so quickly in my life. I, I just could not read the play, couldn't pick up on anything. And it just felt like you were standing still and everything was going around you. But once I was exposed to that, I suppose a few games into the season, it felt, it felt quite normal. And you work out really quickly how to find the ball. And and that was my greatest asset. And that's um, why I suppose I was able to play a variety of positions because I could just read the play. And the other two boys, because they were, I suppose, key position players and not as developed in that they would play against other key position players who were obviously mature.
2: They probably found it a little bit harder than I did at the start. Apart from the obvious two, Ruff and Bud, who did you become close to in the early stages?
1: Uh, Hodgie would have been one. Um, Trent Crowe was, was a guy that really put his arms around us and looked after us in the early couple of years. Um, guys like Rick Ladson, um, Campbell Brown I lived with for a few years, um, Ben Dixon, Croft was great to us young kids, Spider Everett was good to us young kids, um, and probably Richie
2: Vandenberg. Mm. Speaking of Ben Dixon, now that you've mentioned his name, if eating ever became an Olympic sport, <laughs> would he be a gold medalist? He's the best I've ever seen. He is a freak. Speaking about metabolisms, we go
1: we go to Noosa every year with them now, and he's his metabolism's slowing down. But he could eat. So where, where he and Croft got billeted to when they first came to Hawthorne was where I got billeted to. And Rob and Pat Benham were the people that took us in. They just said they have never seen anything like it
2: mm. in their life. I mean, he, he he is extraordinary. There's a story that he tells where he went to some Italian restaurant one night and polished off three pizzas and I think a couple of pastas in the one sitting.
1: Yeah, it, it may have been that one on Burke Road. We used to have our meetings before the game at a place on Burke Road, an Italian place, and the entrees were seriously like more than a main size. Mm. And I could see him polishing off three of those easily.
2: Uh, We've covered yeah. a few topics in this conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. we? I'll tell you what, why don't we take a break and I'll attempt to get things back on track, no. but you know that that it, probably won't happen no. for too long. That's uh, what but the we'll, good conversations are about. Yeah, is, we'll, we'll talk flags and we'll yeah. probably talk a few other things along the way too. Jordan Lewis is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934 – Plenty more still to come with Louie. We don't know what,
0: but stay with us after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
2: Hope you're enjoying the wide-ranging chat with Jordan Lewis on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. Let's talk Flags you mentioned 2008 before the general accepted feeling amongst the football world was you got there before you were supposed to. And I think you alluded to that before.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think when Clarko came to the club and he probably sold to us what the long-term plan was, oh wait, it was probably more of a building year. You know, it would have been, it was our third year playing and his third year as coach. So I don't think anyone when they take over a club would expect things to come so quickly. So that, but that season if you look back on that season we were we were a, a pretty good side and clarko introduced something that was was new in terms of a whole defensive structure and sides found it hard to to get through and get around so it was it was a masterstroke in terms of that but that no doubt had a, a big way in us winning the flag that year
2: so everyone remembers 2008 And Crody was to leave soon after that. You got close to him, you said. Was that a bit of a wrench when he left?
1: Yeah, it was. And I suppose his mindset was all about he'll play till he's 50. He was just such a a positive and um, nearly unrealistic sort of um, player. But he came down and and broke his foot in that grand final. And he he was clearly never the same as a player. And I think that really hurt him as a person as well but he was he was a fantastic player and even to be introduced to Cyril Rioli that year as a player as well and to look back and people always ask me oh what what's your favorite premiership and every everyone has got different um meanings for me and and I it was more about um Crawford I suppose and and just to understand what he'd given to Hawthorne and understand what he'd given to the game and the one thing that he always spoken about was He'd just love to win a premiership. And for me, after the match, that was probably the lasting memory of of that match for me.
2: So we remember the flag of 2008. We obviously remember the triumvirate of flags, 13, 14, 15. But the period in between, you alluded to the fact that perhaps you got a little bit comfortable as a football club after winning the premiership in 2008.
1: Yeah, well, every club does skinfold tests and we came back after 2008 for the start of pre-season and we had in body fat an extra person. That wasn't great. That's a bad start and you got 15 guys in rehab and you got more fat that we have to do. So Andrew Russell, our fitness coach, he wasn't a happy man. The rest of that era wouldn't have probably happened if we hadn't had such a disappointing year after being so successful. I think that really really sort of said to us as a playing group and a coaching staff like okay we can't rely on what happened last year to be
2: successful in the following year so we put that aside and we get to 2013 was the feeling all the way through that year that the flag was attainable
1: yeah and, and it was the only option from a from a play point of view we we had I mean to deal with the grand final loss is probably the hardest thing so you ask about the west coast loss for me that's nothing in in comparison to a grand final loss. It's just to sit there and see the other side get up and receive their medals and understand yeah. that you're so close. That's, that's the game that hurts the most. But then that next period was... 13 was one of those ones where we just needed to get ourselves in a position where we would play finals, qualify for finals, but then get ourselves in a position where we could then be in another grand final. Once we got to the grand final, we, we were... We were never going to lose just because of the hurt and everything that happened the year before. But we learnt lessons in that we could play our absolute best football during the year and it's still not enough. You could still get beaten in the grand final. So I think 13, we timed our run
2: a little bit better and we played our best football certainly in the grand final. So you win the flag in 2013. What's the difference between the 2014 Hawthorne compared to the 2009 Hawthorne, the year after a premiership? walking to the rooms
1: after the grand final and there was a premiership cup on a, on a stand with a glass ceiling on it. And then there was another one that sort of sat next to it and it said 365 days to go. So that was, that was our mindset. You enjoy the win, enjoy the grand final and everything that came with it, but understand that's, that's our next goal. Mm. Whereas 2008, there wouldn't have been anything like that, or there was nothing in our program that suggested, Hey, stop thinking about, what we'd just done, and now focus your attention on next year. What we do right now can impact the way that our season unfolds. And that was probably the message that we'd learnt.
2: What about in 2014, Louis, the fact that Buddy was out there but he wasn't wearing brown and gold? Did you interact with him much during that game? Um, well, probably more physically.
1: <laughs> we we wanted to make it a hard day for him. Mm. Um, it's funny because you, you certainly understand – why he made the decision and why he went up there, um, but there was no way that he was going to win a grand final against us. At a side that we'd lost to two years before, and a side that had just taken our arguably our best player, that was never, never
2: going to happen in our mind. What did you say to him after the final siren? Did you catch up with him?
1: Yeah, I, briefly after the game. I, it's it's always hard because, I mean, you are so happy in terms of what you've just achieved, but he's so sad. And I suppose thinking, what if I had have stayed? Um, So it was, it was bad luck. We'll catch up down the track when everything sort of settles down. Um, Mm. But You can't
2: say too much in that, in that instance. And then 2015 comes along three in a row. Did you feel as though you were part of one of the great teams? Because that's what everybody was talking about. Only the great teams went three in a row.
1: We didn't, to be honest. And I suppose when you're going through your career and it's only when you retire that you have time to reflect. And when we when we were in the, the day-to-day business of playing and performing every week, the greatest thing that I suppose Clarko and the coaching staff did was we were we always had to be on. So if we were playing... GWS when they came into the competition, and we we knew we'd win by 10 to 20 goals, say. It would be about we need to go out there with the right approach, play the right way. If, if anyone is lairising, it'll get shown on a Monday. So even the easy games that year, we would be in a position where it would just we'd have to perform. So you never ever felt invincible. Until it's funny, until I went to Melbourne and and they would speak about playing against us and they just go, we, we were just so defeated. But I never thought about how were we were perceived by anyone else other than internally because we would still get marked harshly. We'd win by 10, 15 goals some games and get barreled in team reviews because we didn't play the right way. Mm. So you never felt like you were on the edge of something really special un- until you, know, you sort of leave that environment or leave the game and then you go, actually, we... I used to look at the Brisbane side and think this side is unbelievable, the best side I've ever seen. And we've arguably been,
2: been that. They couldn't win four in a row. They came close. That word thorn was bandied about in 2016. Just a bridge too far to win four. If we had have won that first final
1: and got, and got the rest, I think we would have been really in for a show. Yeah it's funny I haven't I haven't sort of recollected too much on the 16 year but then we go we go out in straight sets to the Bulldogs who ended up winning the flag but not not as a playing group we certainly felt like we were we were right in amongst it but I just felt like we were the combination of 13 14 15 playing that extra sort of three or four games at every season um, and then coming into a a point in that where Bulldogs were really playing well and we just looked Tied on that game But I I believe if we had Won that first final We would have been A real
2: shot One last question About this fantastic era The unsociable football That was talked about And you were One of the leading lights Of the (laughs) unsociable football Did you cross the line At any stage?
1: Oh clearly We've been reported A few few times But um, I mean that's I love that Aspect of football I hate watching other people do it, but you just, I don't know. I think when Clarko was drafting people, I think he just wanted competitive people and that came out in, in games, but it, it would also overstep the mark. I don't know whether deliberately or it would just stupidity or whatever it may have been, but we were just so competitive. We just wanted to win at every turn. And that was in training. We would, we would have blues at training because we wanted to, to win whatever the game was, and unfortunately that would just come out in games. Who was the best blue, or what was the best blue you had
2: at training? Oh,
1: i I remember my first training session. I had one with Richie Vandenberg. Mm. I was, he ran he ran through me, and I wasn't happy about that. And we, and then some people came up to me after the game, after training session, said you can't speak to. Richie Vandermeer, they're like, why not?
2: Like, it's competitive. We we want to win. So deal with it. So last question on this. Is there any moment that you look back on with all of the unsociable stuff? And, yeah, you did get reported a few times. But is there any moment that you'd take back on the footy field? I remember early
1: on in my career, we played Port Adelaide over there. And um, Kane Corns and I were having words. And I spat in his direction, I suppose it was deliberately in his direction, but not not to get him and that's probably the moment where I would just think back and go that that was that was not in the spirit of the game mm. and that's probably the only one that that comes to to my mind.
2: We're just about out of time, but We've got to talk about Melbourne a little bit more. We'll do that when we come back on the other side of the break. Jordan Lewis is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives, a family-owned business since 1934. Find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Oh, suddenly it looks impressive. Oh!
2: Oh! Lewis has not moved. Wonderful courage from both
0: players. It was a terrible pass. It put him in danger. Spills wide Higgins. Opportunity. The hand pass comes across from Pickham. But the concern is with Lewis. Jordan Lewis... The stretcher out immediately. You just hold now? your he breath, though, up. don't you, when you he's see those lateral up. kicks into the centre of the ground. He's he's a, I been mean, been that's just great deck. courage. He's the ball's focused. there. Well, Harper the has body to body make an head. attempt to mark the
2: ball. <laughs> he's out before he hits the ground okay. there, Lewis. Well, gone back and he's got him in headlock- it is one of the hardest hits that we've seen in footy. Jordan Lewis is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life at Toven Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. That hit, it's become footy folklore now. Do you remember it? (laughs) No. (laughs) Is is that a good thing? Yeah. Well, if I had remembered, I wouldn't have been knocked out
1: cold. Looking back on that moment, I've, I've learned a lot of stuff from it, funnily enough. And I think the course of the whole concussion and the way that we deal with concussion changed from that moment as well. Because Did you come back
2: on? I came back on um, that seems unthinkable when you look at that vision.
1: Yeah. So I went down to the rooms, and because it was so graphic, I suppose, I had mates and family that were in the crowd, so they all came down to the rooms as well. The process back then was they gave you three words to remember, and if you could remember those words, you were basically assessed as being okay to get back on. Unfortunately, I had some friends there that were helping me out with with the words, and, I, and at the time I didn't think anything of it, but now I just think how ridiculous is that to even... Trying to beat the system in that way. But then, so I remembered the words and then came back on. And I remember my, um, mother and father-in-law were living in the same building as Linda Dessau, who was part of the AFL commission at the time. And she was horrified that I came back on. So she started to really look into what are we doing as a, as an organization about concussion protocols. And that was the change of, of what we, what we brought in and what we see now. I wasn't right. I wasn't right. I could train Monday to Friday and be okay. But as soon as I was exposed to a higher level of intensity, I was a
2: couple of seconds off for probably a month. Do you feel any long lasting effects now from that concussion, any concussions you've had?
1: I've been fortunate, I suppose, in my career to to only have that. And then I had one at under 18s and that was really the only things that I ever had in um, in my career, albeit it was a really graphic one. I had nothing else in terms of structural damage or anything. It was It was more inside my, in my head, but no, I don't feel any types of lingering effects. You know, I see people, players at clubs now who can't run because they get headaches and and even, you know, Liam Pickin who had to retire because of headaches and stuff like that. Mm. I think I've been fortunate in
2: that sense to not have that accumulation of head knocks. We've already touched on the fact that you've been at Melbourne and I'll ask you a little bit about that, but the way that you got there when you were told that probably there was no longer a future there for you, did that hurt?
1: Yeah, it, it hurt more so than it was surprising, I suppose. I mean, I we just had our best and fairest count on the Tuesday and on the Saturday night, uh, and I came runner-up to Sam Mitchell. So I thought, you know, I'm on the back end of my career, clearly. I, I had another year to run on my contract, so it didn't cross my mind that potentially I could be at another club within seven days. So when I get a text message from Clarko saying, are you around at 10 a.m. the next morning on a Wednesday morning, um, I knew that it wasn't good. And so he came around and we, you know, spoke about potentially because Hodgie was about to give up the captaincy. He goes, we can't, we can't really guarantee you a playing contract past next year and we can't guarantee you that you'll be captain of the football club. If If you wanted to explore your options, we are more than happy for you to go and do that. But just understand that we can't offer you anything past 2016. Seventeen, sorry. So I thought, well, for me the the writing's on the wall. You know, if you if you want to get out, you've got to get out now. So the hardest thing for me was Hawthorne wanted to be in control of where I went because they wanted to get players in, specific players, Jaeger O'Mira from the Gold Coast. So I, I never wanted to relocate. So I took it upon myself to call Todd Viney and say and said this is this is the what's been put in front of me. Melbourne I looked at it as a side that was really on the improve. They smacked us halfway through the year, and I thought, well, this this is an aggressive side that I'd love to be a part of and try and help shape. So they were my my one and only choice. So I put all my eggs into that basket and went back to Hawthorne and basically said, I'm happy to be traded, but it's got to be to Melbourne. When all that was unfolding, Mitch committed to West Coast. So then Clarko and Wrighty were were wanting me to stay in a sense and I said my decision's been made you came to me and and offered me the chance to get out and then do the deal with Melbourne so that was it was surprising and and they they tried to sell me Gold Coast to get the Jaeger O'Meara deal done but I I didn't want to go there I wanted to stay in Melbourne where my family was and and be a part of Melbourne.
2: So did you leave on good terms or was there a bitter taste in your mouth?
1: No I don't and, and as we spoke about early on in the show I couldn't Unfortunately, I couldn't care less, which is probably.
2: It's a good attitude to yeah, have. Yeah, it's a
1: good attitude. But my, I mean, I always have arguments with my wife. She goes, you've got to care more. I'm like, "What? Well, if something's happened in your life and you, can, and you cannot influence it right now and you've just got to look at the cards you've been dealt and, and deal with it, you've just got to move on. So I've, I've got no animosity towards Hawthorne or Clarke or anyone. I'm quite happy with the chance that they gave me. Now, could I have stayed at Hawthorne and performed at a high level? Absolutely. I think they may have missed a little bit of leadership without me being there, and certainly on field. I don't hold any grudges for them moving me on.
2: All right, we're just about out of time, but there is one other particular subject that I want to ask you about, and that is you're a bit of a, a foodie and a bit of a wine buff now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I do love, I do love that. The How'd wine. how you get into that? That was um,
1: it was by chance a little bit. I mean, coming from Warrnambool, as you would probably know, there's no vineyards. That are in Warnable. So I was never exposed to wine. My dad was never a wine drinker. So we went on our honeymoon and we spent time in between Florence and Siena at a vineyard. And maybe being that sort of neat freak, I just walked into a vineyard and everything for me was just perfectly set up. Barrels were in line, they were all clean. The whole
2: vineyard was just beautiful. So if you're coughing one of those Pinot Noirs, what's the favourite meal that you would like to have with it? Is it something that Lucy prepares or is it something that you go out for? I'm just obsessed with BYO restaurants Mm. at the moment. So there's one around the corner from
1: me called Caribou, which is fantastic food.
2: What's your go-to dish?
1: I love darkened Pinot. A bit of Peking darkened Pinot for me is the ultimate dish. Or champagne and oysters. sounds a bit wanky, but... It's oh, yeah. beautiful.
2: Do the oysters work? The boy from Warrnambool. <laughs> well, I've got three kids. So yeah, obviously three of them work. No more oysters. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been a very wide-ranging discussion, and I think probably on that note we should end it. But uh, it's been a great career. Three hundred and ninety games, four premierships, a much-decorated player, a much-admired player, and uh, you're forging a career in the media, and I'm very pleased to see you doing so well. Thank you very
1: much. Thanks for having me, Donners.
2: Thanks for coming in. Jordan Lewis is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life today for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Don't forget you can find out more from tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll have another great of Australian sport along same time next week. Hope you can join us then.
0: Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au.
1: Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World
0: Cup Qatar 2022 semi-finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.